Hello and welcome to Dynasty as They Want to Be, a podcast where we drill into every episode of the iconic 1980s television series, Dynasty. I'm your host, Derek J. Lang, and with me is my co-host, Kyler K. Jafari. Buenos dias. Buenos dias. Well, for this episode, we're coming to you live. Well, not live, recorded, but we are recording on location at the La Quinta Resort and Club in beautiful Coachella Valley. Just outside of Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're just having a little sojourn. In the hot sun. One thing I learned that I did not know is that, so here at the La Quinta Resort, they have like over 40 pools. Some of them are bigger, some of them are small. Some are lap pools, some are plunge pools. Just a pool for every season. And uh, they cool them all. I didn't even realize that you could cool a pool. Like that was technology well, that who existed. thinks that that's something you would need? It's usually you want to heat the pool. Exactly. But it's so hot in Palm Springs that... 112 degrees. Yeah. People want to take a dip into a nice chilling atmosphere. And so, yeah, they uh, they have the technology here where they're cooling their pools, which is quite lovely well i just like how this place reminds me of la mirage which is our favorite hotel on dynasty yeah i so it's a little bit of a spoiler because we've only tackled the the first season Please, the show's been out for 38 years i don't <laughs> think we're spoiling anything at this point well i know of it because you've talked about la mirage before but apparently what season is it introduced i don't remember it might be Toward the end of the next season or into the third season. I, you know, somewhere in there. But yeah, apparently it's this palatial resort where characters just go to. <laughs> or they... it's not very palatial at all. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It's it's like they didn't have money for another set. So why um, does this place remind you? Well, of because of all the life. establishing shots and like it's supposed to be sort of a, I think in the beginning anyway, it's like sort of Spanish mission style, sort of the way the La Quinta is. Um, and it's in this hot desert, you know, California setting. Oh, it's in California. It's not in Colorado. Um, no, but the original hotel that they used to shoot the exteriors. Oh, is. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's a that's again, it's a big problem with Dynasty is they don't really shoot anything location that you feel like you're in Denver. Yeah, La Mirage was actually the Mountain Gate Country Club in in Westwood. But yeah, I think it has that that same sort of style. As, yeah, uh, you know, it's uh, stucco with a tile roof. And lots of palm trees, which, again, I don't know where Denver got palm trees from, but sure. And they also there's a there's a whole subplot with Crystal and the tennis instructor there. And, you know, we got our tennis lesson while we were here. So. Oh, so that was what was giving you La Mirage vibes. It's, it's all just very much that idea of, of a resort in, you know, the early 80s. It's, you know, golf, tennis. Spanish mission sprawling resort. Yeah, well, we really packed it in. We haven't been here that long, but we, yeah, we had a tennis lesson yesterday and we went and had a special wine massage. Kyler, do you want to, you want to tell the listeners what a wine massage entails? It's massage with a wine. (laughs) No, it was kind of cool. They, they give you four different pours of wine and then you choose which one you like. And that's what the kind of products that you put like on your that. body we, we like the pinot noir but that's not the one we ended up choosing yeah we went with the the sauvignon blanc i think you did i think i stuck with the pinot noir no you didn't we were both drinking white wine at the end 
Oh, no, that's just because that's what we wanted to drink. <laughs> right, because it's too hot for Pinot Noir. Yeah. Well, nobody's going to La Mirage in this week's episode. We've got a trial going on. Mm. Court is in session. It really is. This this moved at a, at a clip, as they say. It was a very fast-moving trial, so... Did it, though? This trial's going to take about four episodes to get through. No, I think it. I think it's moving really quickly already. Um, let's take a break. Yeah, let's and... take a brief recess. Welcome back, Yowzer. We get right into um, the arrest of it all. The press, the cops, everybody has swarmed the Carrington Mansion after Ted Denard bites it. Well, this is just all very illustrative of how Blake's so used to operating outside of the law. And how amoral all of his capitalist greed is that he's just like, no, you can't arrest me. You can't take me away. And, you know, the the arresting officer has to basically say, well, here's the law, Blake. Like, we're going to tell you and we have to take you away. It doesn't work any other way. Yeah. He's like, oh, what are these laws you're talking of? Rules? I don't know of rules or laws. And Fallon's the same way. She's like, you can't put him in handcuffs. Yeah, it, I just I do like that ain't the, the kind of jewelry my daddy wears. And also, um, you get this his reunion with Crystal, who gives up her whole shenanigans to go to Ohio. Yeah, I, did she even get on the plane to go to no, Ohio? She that took was- a she took a drive in that rental car and brought it back, and you know. She's like, oh, I guess I'll just go home. I'm yeah. bored with this. No, she knew that plan wasn't going to work. And we we knew it wasn't either. But I thought maybe she might be gone for a couple of scenes. But right away, she's back in the mix of it at I like, Blake's fucking side. I like her return, though, because she's sort of matter of fact at first. But then it's mm-hmm. a very emotional reunion with Blake. And it's the opposite of the prior episode where she was like basically giving this dramatic monologue to drunk, passed out Blake, who wasn't even there to hear it. Uh, And here they have this embrace and she's not she doesn't have any lines. It's all just pure physical acting from her. Yeah, I guess it was I I don't know. I don't see what are you pissed off at Crystal? Yeah, (laughs) she should have just left. I don't know. It just seems. I mean, I do like what happens later on in the episode with her, which we'll get to. But I don't know. It just seems like a dumb decision to me. So I, I, can't I still want that spinoff it. that could have been the Crystal in Ohio. Like what would like Cleveland Flats? Like what would it have been called? I well, at know. least an episode. Like remember when Tina Fey went to uh, I think it was Cleveland <laughs> and Thirty yeah. Rock. It could have been, you know, a very eye-opening experience. Like Cleveland that. rocks. Mm-hmm, it does. Well, did you notice that the whole episode starts, literally starts, with the flashing of the camera bulb from the news reporters? Yes. Can I fact check this, please? Yes, please do. So, first of all, just because a murder happened at the Carrington Mansion and then arrest is going on, the press wouldn't be outside literally the front door. It's private fucking property still. Like maybe the police might set up like a press. Maybe security was area. like off that night or something. Yeah, and the media just like flooded the gates. Like I don't know. It just seemed a bit ridiculous that there were all these like paparazzo and reporters like. Screaming. Yes and no, but I mean this is a primetime soap. We we want flash and we get it literally. And uh, also I think that uh, th- he's sort of like being compared to any like major mogul of industry. Um, like imagine if like Warren Buffett 
were involved in something like this. Like, of course, this would be like a media circus. Oh, for sure. And this was this whole trial that's starting up is giving me, well, even more than just the trial, the arrests, everything that's happening really does take me back to like OJ times. Like this is the yes. trial of the century. Mm-hmm. This is the there's trial a, of the 80s. There's a media circus going on. There's lots of crazy supporting characters that are like dipping in and out and have a say in, in what's going on. And we have somebody that's actually guilty and really did it. So there's a lot of parallels. Well, also this is just all really well shot. Uh, in the beginning, you, you get that like camera po- uh, like point of view down the hallway as Linda Evans, or sorry, as Crystal is walking to the library, and you see like the police interrogating Stephen in the, in oh, the living yeah, room. Oh yeah, it's very you know, slow. Yeah, you see like all she like because she's like I thought I left all of this, and now we've got like Stephen being interrogated, and you know Fallon and right. But the, the, there's Jeff like this like really her. slow tracking shot down the hallway as she's like observing all of these different sort of like mini scenes. It's well directed, and this is like a I think what is it Jack Medford, Jim Medford? I forget Don, the director, but Don. Don Medford, right? Who ends up being like I think the director for most of the next season as well, and maybe after that, but. Yeah, he's done. So he really sets the tone here, and and the season's winding up in a really good way. Well, you know who's being very good is Crystal. So she's at Blake's side at the jail, and she's going to stick with him. And Matthew Blaisdell actually pops up to say, don't do that. Crystal, now you know this trial is going to be very, very hard. You know that, don't you? Yes. Well, then run from it, Crystal, the way you started to. Run from the both of us, Blake and me. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but you finally had the courage to do the right thing, Crystal, and damn it, do it. Did you desert Claudia when she was in trouble? I kind of understood it a little bit more there, but then I also have questions because he did step out on Claudia when she was in the mental institution. This, this whole thing pisses so me off. The logic doesn't yeah. quite make sense, Crystal. Here's the thing, like, because for Matthew, it's like, oh, it's fine to step out on Claudia, but as soon as, I mean, this is a little bit more afterwards, but when Claudia gets blown out for cheating on him, and it's like, but that's so one-sided. Like, he's doing the same thing with Crystal. And they have never really fully explained what the extent of Crystal and Matthew's relationship was before Crystal got married to Blake. So I can't really tell if they were just like smooching and that's what their connection is or if they were just pen pals or if they were boinking. Like who who knows? I don't know. Anyway, it's a good point uh, despite whatever the circumstances are. So after that, we're immediately swept away to... Uh, Glendale, Burbank, uh, Pasadena. That's, that's what it looks like, but it's actually uh, North Dakota, which is where Ted hails no. from. Well, that's what they they said in a voiceover. But yeah, they're uh, Fallon and Stephen are attending the funeral of Ted because apparently he's from North Dakota, and it is a somber affair in more ways than one. Ted's family totally like puts the well, they ice him out. They like, ice him out. They're they on put, one side, and Stephen and Fallon are on the other side of the coffin. And they put the palm right to his face when he tries to give his condolences. But it's nice that Fallon is there to uh, offer some support. But I think we start to see a fissure here where, and this hasn't, it's not really explored a whole lot, but. Stephen and Fallon were there. They saw what happened. They saw their father 
push Ted, who fell over a cardboard oh, well, box, and died. Fallon is a is a daddy's girl. Everything she does is for Blake. Yeah, but it's one thing to be a daddy's girl, and it's a one thing to think that he didn't actually murder somebody when we all saw what happened. Well, it's interesting because there's two sides of all of this. One is the rich versus the working class, which you even get that here at the funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, the family is obviously very you know down home and and from the earth. And then you've got Stephen and Fallon who are, you know, representatives of this sort of like otherworldly high class lifestyle. And that's part of the reason why they don't want anything to do with him either. It's not just so much the you're my son's former gay lover and you're the reason he was shot. Uh, but Although also I bet that's a big part. of Well, it. that's like a huge part of it, but you can't help it like the visual of them on one side of the coffin and the family on the other. It's very much like opposed. And also Fallon, like I think is choosing her daddy's side which is the world of amoral capitalist greed and steven is really more on this other side you know where he's just trying to live his best life and be a good person yeah and it seems like he's still sort of questioning it like did my dad really kill this guy was was it done in in an accidental way or what? It doesn't seem like he's totally keyed into what his emotions are about it, which I can understand that. He just went through this trauma and lost, you know, a former lover. I think he's sort of just aggravatingly ambiguous. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem to be able to make a commitment yeah. emotionally or otherwise. Sexually. You see this later in the trial. He can't really make a commitment to the truth. You know, he's very much trying to feel his way out on things, but it's like he never really takes a position. Yeah. So let's get to the trial. That's mostly what the episode is, is in this courthouse. Now, Blake is charged with first degree murder. Now, I don't know a That's lot a little bit about extreme. law, but that seems a bridge too far. I, I could see like, uh, what is it, third degree? I don't know how many degrees are there, but I could see like the low level, entry level, like murder charge for this. But that's just because, like, I guess prosecutors like to overcharge, well, so they get something. Well, this whole thing but, is hanging on the fact that the first before, degree thing is not meditated. I'm sorry. Yeah, the whole thing is hanging on the fact that he goes, "I'm going to kill it," when he heard that Ted Denard was upstairs. Yeah, that's not really pre meditation and yeah i don't think a lot of da's across the country are taking i'm gonna kill him into account because people say that all the time i said that about you know the waiter who didn't bring me the correct dessert well i i think it's interesting because the da is you know here we have jake uh dunham or whatever back and in my world brian dennehy brian freaking dennehy you know he's he's actually oddly kind of friends with the blaisdales so there's also another dynamic of like the the DA has a, a personal reason to be yeah. against no, Blake. No, I love, it doesn't really play out, but I love no, that doesn't. they set that but up. But it's just there. Yeah. yeah. I love that they set up that the DA or assistant DA or whatever is friends with the Blaisdells who is now being pit against the Carringtons. And now I think about how they were writing this this season. And I, I maybe they did this very much on purpose that they introduced him a couple of episodes prior and then we don't ever see him again. And now here he is like prosecuting Blake Carrington for a murder. And if you think about it, his character in that episode a couple episodes ago, he didn't really need to be in that story. That could have been anybody. So I feel like they did kind of drop him in there. Just oh, to, yeah. So they, you're, they knew where they it's, were going. It's on your mind when he shows up again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, they booked Brian Dennehy for multiple episodes for sure. But as Andy kind of explains, I guess the reason that they're going 
so hard on Blake Carrington is that he's made a lot of enemies in the government and things like that. So the DA, everybody is against him, which they should be. Yeah, everybody wants blood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want blood too. I want the death penalty. Do they have the death penalty in Colorado? Oh, for sure they did. Yeah. Great. I don't know about today, but... So we get the opening arguments, which are so comically over the top and not accurate at all. But I was eating it up because it's a chance for Brian Dennehy to give well, this wild monologue. It's like, I have a slightly cooler take on this. I, I, you know, okay, here it's a soap opera. Here's one of our staples, which is courtroom drama. Uh, we're, we're getting it right here in the very first season. They didn't wait long to pull it out. But the writing, it's fine. I don't think it's good or bad. I think there's some interesting things, but... Uh, like, for example, Brian Dennehy, though, he's given, like, a lot of, like, just goober dialogue. Or not even di- just lines that are just, like, not very good. But, you know, he's, like, full of bluster. And he's doing this, like, cliche, you know, over-the-top DA mm-hmm. character. So I guess he's just sort of like, well, the script sucks, but I'm just going to chew it up anyway. Which is what Brian Dennehy does. So that makes sense for the casting. I don't know. I feel like Brian Dennehy's research included like watching To Kill a Mockingbird or something because yeah, a few episodes. He of was Perry giving me Atticus Finch vibes mm-hmm. um, all over this, but it was still pretty juicy. So I'm here for it. During the selection process, you were all asked several questions about your personal attitudes towards homosexuality. I'd like to remind you. We all of us have a right to our lives, ladies and gentlemen, regardless of our sexual orientation. Be prepared. Be prepared for the defense attorney, however, who may try to create a diversion here. Smokescreen, if you will. May try to confuse you into thinking somehow that the the dead young man, Mr. Denard, was the criminal in this case and not the defendant, Mr. Blake Carrington. It was just one of those things, the more he screamed, the less he was saying. And that wasn't his fault. I I feel like the script wasn't serving up what he wanted to act. Yeah, that's probably true. He wanted to bring more gravitas to it than was really necessary. And Andy Laird's opening is pretty funny, too. He just keeps repeating phrases over and over mm-hmm. again and i can just i don't know see some of those jurors thinking what a fucking bougie prick this guy is talking down to me like that yeah and he has that scene earlier with blake uh, where they're sort of commiserating over their strategy going forward now, now that he's been charged and going to trial and you know blake's like i don't need to understand what first degree murder is or, or how i'm going to not get out of this charge you are the reason i have you here and you're supposed to be doing all that for me, right? But then, like, you see, like, Andy deliver this, like, not very great, you know, opening argument. So, I don't know. Like, I feel like Andy's just, like, maybe he was good in the day, and he's just kind of coasting on that Carrington money now. Yeah, I mean, despite the fact that this is definitely not a first-degree murder, I think they're a little overconfident with their case. I just think again, like maybe the writers just, they weren't there for like great courtroom drama, which 
albeit as difficult. I will say they didn't just rely totally on the courtroom setting to deliver everything. Yeah, I liked that we kind of dipped in and out of the there courtroom. Were, yeah, they d- there were some plot points that come out, which is actually what courtroom drama is good for. It's kind of like the same thing as a dinner party where you get like all these characters together in a universe that wouldn't normally all be in one room together. So courtroom drama kind of does that as well. But here they're not relying on the court just to bring the drama. They're actually, you know, there's there are some plot points that come out. Yeah, I mean, we have Stephen and Blake, uh, their relationship is obviously strained and Stephen has gone incommunicado. He won't pick up anybody's phone calls. Blake tries to go talk to him in the courthouse and Stephen doesn't want to have anything to do with it, which is totally understandable. Well, because Steven, again, he can't commit. He's like so emotionally aggravating to me as a character. Like I want to like him and he is sympathetic in um, a lot of ways, but he just like won't participate. Well, and it's like he take a stand, you know, speaking of sympathy, one of the only sympathetic things I feel like he's ever done other than buying like amazing jewelry and gowns. Blake Carrington does not want Andy to call Claudia Blaisdell to the stand. I had a hard time trying to figure that one out because Why? I'm not sure what is his interest there because he was excited to find out that, you know, Steven's sleeping with a woman. I think that he wants to protect her, A, because she he does know she's been through a lot because everybody in Denver knows that she was committed to a mental institution. And B, I think he he might want Steven and her to have a relationship. And he thinks that if she gets called to testify and Mm. her marriage comes out, that she was having an affair, that she was sleeping with a gay guy, that it'll destroy her. There will be no future for them. It's a little bit living in fantasy land, but I, I, I like that sort of perspective i would never have thought of that i mean but it's hard to say because i don't feel feel like because also get, that would be his way of getting back at matthew by breaking up his marriage yeah i don't feel like we get real insight why blake wants claudia to stay out of the courtroom on this one yeah or just insight into what he thinks in general you know yeah i i just i can't square it with his politics or anything we know about him so far so i don't that's the only thing i don't believe in this story that he doesn't want her on the witness stand. We do get a little glimpse of Claudia, Matthew and, and uh, Claudia are watching the, uh, the trial on TV. And uh, apparently Eddie, the roused about oil man was, was called to testify and is giving us Cato Kalin vibes, really soaking up the publicity In the sensational Blake Carrington murder trial. The day's last witness was Ed Cleves, a driller who worked with Stephen Carrington. Well, so I was like, I told him in there, you know, uh, I saw this as uh, Stevie Carrington. Yeah, he's the son of Blake Carrington, and he was involved with the uh, the deceased. That's what they said in there. Ted Denard. Well, I saw them. I uh, went over to Meadsburg to have a little supper with my wife Nell. It was ready. Yeah, and we were sitting in a restaurant, and uh, well, there we saw them. There they were. They weren't ordinary or anything. They just sitting looking at each other. And every once in a while, they, you know, the one guy he would touch the other guy's face, and pretty soon they were holding hands. I mean, they were. <laughs> they were acting like a couple of. What do you call them now? Um, gays? Yeah, that's it, gays. Yeah, but this the scene with, with Eddie on the TV, you know, you have to remember he's embroiled uh, in this situation with these, you know, news reporters and photojournalists. And again, you have this, this like camera flash everywhere. Like there's a couple of different cuts throughout the episode 
that's focused specifically on the flashing of the camera bulbs. Oh yeah, well the great the best one is when there's a photographer in North Dakota at the funeral who knows about some sneaky all the rodent. He just turns up, you know, and and Stephen and Fallon are trying to have their like private moment at the coffin after the family's ditched them. Yeah, again, and here here's this like photojournalist just shows up to get his three hundred bucks for a picture. Right, I think it was one fifty, but again, it was another not super accurate depiction of the press as a journalist i can yeah but nobody's here for reality if we wanted that we'd watch real housewives (laughs) but yeah fallon shoes him away and he sneaks the picture and gets the shot anyway which dissolves into all the the flash of his his camera which yes dissolves to the all the reporters in the new or at the courtroom i what i like about that and is again it's sort of played up again in the scene with eddie on tv is like there's like a sort of like initial objectivity. So I, I think there's like some interesting undercurrents in this episode, and I don't know how much of that's the director or if that was all just kind of in the script, but it it's 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 better than just daytime soap opera. Yes. Well, speaking of quality, we have to talk about the star witness. Well, I know this trial's continuing to go on, but for this week's episode, the star witness, Jeanette. The quote <laughs> downstairs maid. That's her official title. Downstairs. You know, maid. I'm thinking about how uh, the clothes are always given to the servants, like from the prior season. But what she's wearing, like, there's no way Crystal ever wore that. It just it doesn't make sense to me. Well, maybe other Carringtons wore it. All right. Anyway, but I I feel bad for Jeanette because she's she's beholden to her employer, you know, and she doesn't want to get Blake into trouble. Really, she just doesn't want any part of this, I'm sure. As, well, yeah, as most people in a murder whole trial would feel. case but. hinges on her testimony because she's the one that heard him say, I'm going to kill him. I mean, Joseph was standing there and heard it too, but we know Joseph would lie, lie, lie through his teeth for Blake Carrington because I think Joseph might be gay and have the hots well, for like, him. Like at the funeral, Jeanette, to me, you know, represents this working class perspective and she doesn't really want to get mixed up in all of this. And but she's and not she's gonna not lie, really, though. No, she's, she's not. And to she's, the truth. But she's not really prepared for the trial of, of being on the witness stand. No, she cracks. And yeah. So she she can't be cunning and amoral and sort of above it all the way that you know like Blake Carrington wants to be and can be. So it's it's kind of this like you know it's a sad sort of dynamic between people on her end and people on Blake's end. And she's just sort of like a, you know, a character that really represents that. Yeah. No, she's like chattering her teeth, quaking in her boots throughout the entire testimony. But she, she says the truth. And throughout the episode, we have these weird black and white flashbacks. Mm, Love that. To last week. And they're, some choices were made for these flashbacks. I, I have a hot take on the black and white photography. Give I, it to me. I think the first season of Dynasty is so much different from the rest of what Dynasty ends up becoming. Yeah. It might have actually been really good as just black and white. Um, because Wait, the whole season? The, yes, because I think <laughs> I think it's, it's so much like a, it's such a different tone from what the rest of the show is. And also, I like how black and white sort of emphasizes... Fa- you know, it's very factual, right? Like we're supposed to it's like black and white spells it out. Um, but then it's also actually very gray. So we're like living in all of these like nuances and shades of truth. No, no, I'm totally against this black also, and white. Also thing the because- first season is like, it's 
have you like looked at the photography? It's pretty freaking muddy and brown and earth toned. Well, darling, it's that's not just very because exciting. it's 1981. So I, I think black and white is actually a step up for here. But. No, that's because it's 1981. When it goes to black and white, it instantly starts feeling like decades later because these mansions and the clothes and having servants and maids wearing uniforms is a very old fashioned idea. Even in 1981, it's an old fashioned idea. So when they go back to black and white, I'm like, what is this from like the forties? Is this like one of John Forsythe's first roles or something? Like it looks like a silent picture. And then the, they they didn't make silent pictures in the forties. Well, you know what I mean? It like looks 30, 40 years older than 1981. And then the weirdest choice is when people are talking while the flashback is happening, they have this weird voice distortion. Like c- it's like vocoder or I couldn't auto-tune. handle it. Luckily, they only flash back a couple of times. Well, I think but- I, I think obviously the, they made the choice to do black and white because it's an easy way to distinguish you know, flashback from what's happening in the moment. Well, I also don't think we also, again, I think black and white is supposed to imply like this is like, we're watching the truth versus what they're talking about in the courtroom. Well, isn't the truth what we're watching and didn't we watch that episode last week? So why did we even need to flash back to it? I, I think it was a directorial choice. I think it would be a little bit stylistic to do that. The only thing that I did like is I think we got a different angle on Ted Denard diving into that yes we didn't actually see that angle in the prior episode yeah so so that i I do do like that they introduced that Mm -hmm. i did like that that evidence was introduced but yeah poor jeanette cracks and just reveals that she heard him say i'm gonna kill him and everybody in the room is all a twitter yeah (laughs) not on twitter but a twitter yes he was angry and yes he said something he said, I'll kill him. I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Ryan, would you repeat your answer so the entire courtroom can hear it? Now, what did Mr. Carrington say? The witness will please speak up. He said, I'll kill him. Mr. Carrington said, referring to the deceased, I'll kill him. I'll kill him. Now, if all of this murder trial business is not enough, we also have a takeover. This, to me, is like a really great example of how this show had no idea what it was doing with business stories and mercifully doesn't really inflict a whole lot of that on us as the seasons go on. I I think this is like it's five or eight minutes of the whole, if, if even, of the whole episode. And that's fine with me. Yeah. So Blake pulls Crystal aside. Well, actually, Jeff kind of was the one that insinuates all of this. Jeff overhears mm-hmm. at work that the board of Denver Carrington are going to use his indisposal as a um, opportunity to take over from Blake. Yeah, but Blake's such a know-it-all bitch. He already knows all that. So he's like, yeah, I've already taken care of that, Jeff. Go back to your grapefruit or whatever you're eating over there. <laughs> I think it was an artichoke. Asparagus with hollandaise sauce. (laughs) It's fine. Blake's going to take care of it during a break in the trial. But, oh no, things don't go that smoothly. They finagle a way to move the meeting when the trial is going on. So Blake's big idea is to send Crystal, who has a lot of power in the company, as we know from a few episodes ago when um, 
he was shuffling some money around. So he gives her <laughs> the the layout. He like maps it out like she's going on a scavenger hunt. And what I loved about it is that Crystal was really absorbing this and she's going to go for it. Well, because that's what she does. She's she's overly receptive, overly flexible. You know, she puts up with everything that Blake throws at her. And that's that's a big part of the dynamic in their marriage. Uh, but at least in this in this moment, she's using it for for good, you know, not for, not for bad. So, well, who's to say if it's for good or not? It might be actually good if Blake uh, did get. Axed. Well, she does get to fire that a hole on the board. So yeah, I actually really love that scene. I love seeing Crystal Carrington in a boardroom setting. I just I love seeing her in power. They made a great choice that. Everybody on the board was like a white man wearing in a like gray the same suit. gray suit. And there's Crystal in her hot red number with black piping. It's it's very 80s big business. And so. Yeah. Well, I think it's like pre-big business. I think this kind of lays the foundation for stuff like well, that. Well, again, did Dynasty create the 80s or is it merely a product of? Well, Hard to say. Does I art think, imitate life? We'll figure that out on our journey, but uh, I don't know. I think it's definitely been inspiration for people and yeah she's successful in shutting down some of these assholes on the board i have a document here signed by blake carrington which gives me the power to remove you i hereby exercise that power but don't think that just because blake carrington isn't here that i won't be keeping an eye on you every one of you one of my favorite little moments throughout the episode is the courtroom illustrator what do they call oh that? i, I want to know where these sketches are today <laughs> somebody's got those framed in their basement or something one of them should be in the smithsonian <laughs> although whoever was drawing them definitely fat shaming brian dennehy because he looked like 400 pounds oh, no, no. in those courtroom i sketches. think they were shaming him for his ill-fitting suits which even andy laird called out in a little snippy piece of dialogue with blake earlier yeah and then one of them that was with blake and andy it kind of looked like a a, a tom of finland it looked like <laughs> something sexual was happening like <laughs> tom of finland <laughs> Yeah, I was getting all kinds of weird vibes from those drawings. But yeah, I would bid a lot of money on eBay for one of those sketches. I, I'm sure somebody's hoarding them and they're not going to let their claws off of them. But, you know, it's interesting to compare those to the idea of the camera flash and photography, uh, the idea of the black and white flashbacks. There's all these like different representations of reality going on here uh, that, I, that I think are interesting. Uh, and it, it all it kind of points out to what do you get from a courtroom trial? Do you really find the truth? You know, uh, do you really get justice? Right. So. Well, and that goes back to my point about OJ Simpson. It's like maybe the justice system doesn't always work. You know, if you have money and you're still butthurt over this OJ thing, aren't you? The world is still butthurt <laughs> over it. Obviously. Well, you didn't even talk about the, like Stephen basically calls his sister a liar in front of, God and the court and everybody. Okay, well, I didn't think we wanted to go so oh, chronologically. Oh, oh. So, yeah, the episode ends with Stephen's testimony, which is pretty damning. Damning to Fallon because she just went up there and played daddy's girl, uh, even calls herself to the courtroom a hostile witness for the prosecution. Which yeah, is again, pretty dramatic. Things that probably you would not get away with in a real court of law. No, the judge would shut that down. He would tell her to shut up and, and answer the question. But, but yeah, Brian Dennehy gets 
Stephen Carrington to uh, to confess that his sister lied on the stand. So now we've got one Carrington on trial for first degree murder and another Carrington who's perjured herself. It's kind of heartbreaking because one of the things I've really loved about this first season is the relationship between Stephen and Fallon. I think we've said before they actually really seem to be the only two characters that actually like and love each other. So to see them have to turn on each other in the courtroom. Well, because Fallon is torn between her father and her brother. And she's going to have to make some hard choices there. Yeah. We'll see. Let's, uh, let's take a break and talk about our courtroom looks of the week. All rise. <laughs> And we're back in session for another installment of Looks of the Week. So my look of the week, there's a lot of gray and tan, and I don't think the courtroom setting helps a whole lot. Um, But, you know, Crystal's red power suit uh, that that she goes to the board meeting in is clearly the standout look for me. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, I, I like the, the underdress. I don't, it's, I don't know if it's like a one piece, but it's all black. And then the, the suit top is this red jacket, you know, wide shoulders again. Yeah. I love the black piping. The black piping down the center of, of the sleeves is, that's a sharp detail because that takes, that takes labor and money to cut a sleeve like that. And, and Kudos to Nolan yeah. Miller. So that's not just like something that's just easy to do. That that's you know that's a choice you make. And so that was clearly a designed uh, jacket that she's wearing. And overall, it just kind of like underscores like her her moment of power at the boardroom. You know, which which is you know it's a good touch when costumes kind of kind of feed into the drama. I agree. That was definitely a hot look. Very powerful, very executive realness. I have to say, though, my favorite, and it only appeared oh, no. very, very briefly, but they, uh, when the Carringtons and the Colbys were having dinner together, a very depressing dinner, in which I think they were eating like halves of artichokes or something Yeah, they were eating artichokes and asparagus it was it was a very green dinner (laughs) yeah and then like mashed potatoes for the main course the dinner was not the look of the week it was what fallon was wearing this kind of like navy i liked this i'm glad you called this out yeah this navy top with what do you call that bunching ruching yeah no it's it's just like a classic sort of uh greek draping treatment or something yeah it's it's a nice and navy is not really a color you think of uh, for sharp dressing, at least not not in the '80s, and like this is a, a nice look. I, oh I, yeah, Na- if navy worn in the wrong way can be, you know, well, it's a tricky color, but she's doing it right because she's got brunette hair. Um, if you're blonde, it's a little bit too much of a contrast, I think. And if you're if you have black hair, it doesn't work with navy necessarily. So, but yeah, uh, yeah, it's draped perfectly. We don't see a lot of it because they're sitting down for dinner, of course. But it's just draped perfectly. It goes over the shoulders a little bit. And Fallon's hair, like whoever was doing the blow drying that day, A plus bravo. Yeah, her, her hair this whole episode has been on point. And she's also wearing this outfit in the library where she's calling Steven. And like I noticed, the, the, I think we both noticed the rotary dial phone. Oh, yes. has a touch tone sound effect. <laughs> honorable mention to a, like, what do you call it? Not a I don't know. It's not a princess phone. That's what you'd think that would be yeah. called. It's like the, the Louis XV. 
15 like right honorable mention like, to the the louis, louis 15, 15 rotary dial phone with, but it wasn't rotary it was i guess it wasn't tone. but I, I was trying to figure out if the actions of her hands were doing rotary or doing touch tone but well anyway, here's the whatever. thing she wasn't actually making a phone call it was make-believe so it could have been a rotary <laughs> phone and pamela sue martin just started just pressing. started pressing it like it was a yeah i don't know so they just had to accommodate with the sound effects Last week on Dynasty as They Want to Be, I kept calling Blake a masochist, but actually he's a sadist. And those are two very opposite terms. So I don't know. I guess I'm just not doing my S&Ms these days because I don't know why I mixed that up. Well, we're going to take you down to the dungeon after this recording, and you're going to learn the difference between a sub, a dom, Here comes a the judge. <laughs> Order in the court. Well, thank you for that correction, Kyler. And also thank you for joining me. Everybody who's listening, thank you so much. We value your support, especially when you tweet at us or like shit that we post on Instagram. You can find us on all the social media places at Nasty Podcasts. That's Nasty, N-A-S-T-Y, Podcasts. And we also have a website to uh, nastypodcast.com. If you, you can find links to everywhere the podcast is available. Until next time, Dynasty as They Want to Be is adjourned. <laughs> 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 <laughs>